Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. You know, the invitation to come home is seen throughout the Bible. In fact, you don't go past the seventh chapter of Genesis when the ark has been constructed. You see the first invitation given. where The Bible says, come thou and all thy house into the ark. Then you go to Revelation and almost the last chapter of Revelation and it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that hears come and let him who is thirst come. So the whole Bible is about God's arms outstretched to those of us who've wandered away. And the invitation is to come home. And the journey home is really short. You're actually just one prayer away. Doesn't matter how far away you feel, you're a prayer away. The journey home begins with acknowledging the fact that you're away from him, you're distant from him, you need him. I mean, you can't get help until you acknowledge the fact that you, that you need it. And once you begin to pivot, the word is repent. It means metanoia, is to turn, to change. Going one way, you've gone the other way. And the minute that happens, something happens in your heart. You receive the love of your heavenly Father inwardly, not just outwardly. You feel that. You have a connection with him. He is your father. You are his child. And from that moment in time until you step into his presence, you'll always be his child. So the invitation to come home is a strong invitation. It's one that we're extending on behalf of our Heavenly Father to this community through the Easter season to, to come home. Not just to come and be a part of a church, but to come into a relationship with Jesus. And we have a great opportunity at Easter. You know, people typically go to church a couple of times a year, right? <laughs> and one of those is Easter. One guy said he's been to church and he'll probably go at least three times. He said, the first time I went, they sprinkled a little water on me. He said, the second time I went, they threw some rice at me. He said, I guess the last time I'll go, they'll throw dirt on me. So I hope we get you back more often than that. But the point is, uh, we, want you to, we want you to be here. We want you to be a part. And we want you to invite your family and friends who aren't connected into a church anywhere to be a part of one of these services. We want to build our church off of people who aren't connected in the lives of any other church. Uh, so this is a great opportunity to do that. And you know, when Jesus was talking and he was talking about the reason that he came into the world, it's very clear. He made it clear in Luke 19.10. He said, the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. He came after the wanderers and he came after the wayward and he came after the wicked. He came after us. I mean, the heart of God is to reach everyone in this room. God just doesn't love all of us. He loves each one of us. In fact, the Bible talks about it in Peter 3, 9. It says, uh, God is not willing. You say, what's the will of God? I can give you a part of it. He is not willing, here it is, that any should perish, not many, but any, but that all should come to repentance. It is the heart of God for every wayward child to come home. And the invitation is there. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter what you've done. It, it, none of that matters. All of that's covered at the cross. He made provision for us to, for us to come home. In fact, when Jesus uses the word lost to describe the condition of those of us who've wandered, it's the most frequent word that he uses to describe people not connected with him, lost. 
there's kind of a, an emptiness in the word. We've all been lost from time to time. If you ever been in the mountains and you've gotten lost or you've been on a hike and gotten lost or you've been in your car and you've gotten lost. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a word that we all can relate to and we all can understand the idea of being lost. And Jesus is saying that's the spiritual condition of people without God. They're, they're really lost. They're trying to find their way. And you talk to people about it. They say, well, how are you doing spiritually? I don't know the best I can, you know. Nobody can really know, you know, at the end, I hope the good outweighs the bad, and, you know. Get to heaven, maybe, you know, I get in. I don't get past Simon Peter. I mean, everybody's had this crazy idea of going to heaven. Maybe the good outweighs the bad. Can I tell you, I wouldn't trust the best five minutes I've ever lived to be good enough to get me into heaven. <laughs> I mean, I just wouldn't. It's the idea that Jesus did all the heavy lifting at the cross and all we have to do is acknowledge the fact that we need him and we need that. And the minute we pivot and turn toward home, he will receive us. The Bible says, Jesus said, those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. You say, Bill, you don't know what I've done. I don't need to know what you've done. I can't absolve you of anything. I'm a sinner just like you. Uh, your sins may shock me, but they won't shock God. <laughs> He's heard it all. And the point is, once you make that pivot, and you go toward him, you ain't that bad that he can't receive you. Him that comes to me, he said, she that comes to me, he said, I will in no wise cast out. I mean, the, the welcome mat of the church is simply this, whosoever will, let them come. And so Jesus was making that clear throughout his ministry. I, I, I'm going after the lost. And by the way, as we'll see in our text that we're going to explore for this series, he was criticized for that. Did you know Jesus was criticized for going after lost people? In fact, the people that criticized him, you may not be shocked to know this, were religious people. I mean, they kind of got to that point in their, in their journey where they felt like, you know, they were uh, good enough and they were going to go to heaven and everyone else was beneath them and below them and they would kind of pontificate in the way they looked at people and talked to people. And yet, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, in fact, Luke chapter 15, verse 1 says that tax collectors and sinners were drawn to him. Now, understand, tax collectors were not nearly as popular in that day as they are in our day. So let me explain that so I don't get audited. Uh, the tax collector in, in that day were, were people, Jewish people, hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from other Jewish people. And so they became corrupt. Uh, they were kind of like a, a, a mafiosa, if you will. They, they would, uh, for example, if you owed money, you're a Jewish person and you owe taxes to Rome and your tax bill is pretty significant, uh, they might come to you and say, look, you pay me a little something over the, under the table, I'll pay Rome a little bit, this bill goes away and we're good to go. So they were corrupt. Well, the Jewish people didn't respect them. The Roman government didn't respect them either. They tolerated them because they figured, well, we're getting a little something and little of something's better than all of nothing. So they would kind of let them operate under that, but nobody wanted to be around them. Nobody wanted to hang with them. And so I, that, that's what I'm telling you. If you don't know the context of how Luke 15 opens, you might not appreciate that. But the Bible says tax collectors, kind of the, the mafia of the day, the, the very deceitful, crooked people who took advantage of other people were drawn to what he was teaching. And then it says sinners, which is pretty much is a blanket statement for other people away from God. But the ones who criticized him, Luke 15, 2, were the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious order of the day. In fact, there was a teaching of the rabbi that says there's only two classes of people. There are the righteous and the unrighteous. And of course, they considered themselves, obviously, to be righteous. So it was just, I'm in and you're out. And that's kind of how they looked at everyone else. 
And they kind of went through life with that sort of a view. And so they're there noticing the crowd that's collected following Jesus. They were seeing how many messed up people were really being attracted to Jesus. And I can tell you, man, when Cindy and I and a handful of our folks, many of them here this morning and our kids, when we launched the Met Church, I've told you before, one of the things we prayed for is God send us really, truly, genuinely messed up people. And look around, isn't this great? <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> we're all messed up. That's what I love about us. We're just messed up. We're just honest enough to go, I'm messed up. <laughs> and so that's the group. Hey, you're in good company. They were following after Jesus. They were going after him. And the religious people, the, thought they, the, the, the righteous that were doing it right, you know, they criticized. And the criticism was he receives sinners and fellowships with him. Wow, that was a criticism. That ought to be said of every one of us in this room that we are receiving of people who do not know Jesus and we fellowship with him. You see, you'll never lead anyone to Jesus unless you first build a redemptive relationship with them. People don't care, you've heard this, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You see, we're to be fishers of men. My job as a pastor is to fish, I catch fish, he cleans them. <laughs> Not my job, I don't know where the dirt is, that's his job, I catch them, he cleans them. We got a good deal going. And the church ought to be a welcoming place for people who do not yet know Jesus. We ought to be building these redemptive relationships to people who are, who are lost. A telling statistic I read that was really troubling to me in a way, it says, after a person has received Jesus as Savior, within the first two years of that experience, they have virtually no friendships with people who don't know Jesus. It's a terrible indictment on the church. They just insulate, isolate from people who, it's, let me tell you, it's Phariseeism, it's back to the righteous and the unrighteous. You see that? And that's what Jesus was knocking in the head. I mean, one of the last things he said before he ascended to the Father, after he said, do what I did, be salt, be light, make a difference, love everyone. What he said was, you will be, Acts 1.8, you will be my witness. Start in Judea, Samaria, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost. I mean, be my witnesses. And so the point he was making is, I'm leaving you here to share your experience with people who don't know me. What is a witness? A witness is someone who expresses an experience. If you're called to court as a witness, they just want to know what you know. What'd you hear? What'd you see? What'd you experience? What do you do when you share your faith? Your witness, I just tell you what I did. I tell you what he done, he's done for me, not rocket science. I just say, look, this is what he did for me. And I, man, he'd probably do that for you, right? He doesn't, again, doesn't love all of us. He loves each one of us. And then he didn't love any of us more than the other one. So if he did this for one person, he can do it for another. What's my point? My point is so many times a church can get sidetracked where the main thing is no longer the main thing. And we don't have a heart for people who don't know Jesus. And that should be the heart of the church. And certainly in the spirit of Easter, we're encouraging you to invite people who aren't connected into the life of the church to come and be a part of the services, praying that the Holy Spirit of God can penetrate their heart and make a difference in their life. Because you never know where someone is, as we're gonna see in the story. You, you never know where they are in their journey. That person you invite may be at a point, a pivotal point in life where they're open and receptive. Sometimes you invite them and they're not ready. They're still kicking the tires and thinking about it. But you have invited them and you've given them an opportunity to hear and to think. 
When Isaiah was talking about it, he said, come now and let's reason together, says the Lord. You know, Christianity, salvation, relationship with God, however you want to frame it, it's reasonable. You don't leave your brain in the car and check your brain there and come in a building and let somebody think for you. Christianity, salvation, the Bible, it's reasonable. It's part of your heart is your intellect, your mind. And you reason through it, you think about it, you ponder on it, and then at some point you take a step of faith and you receive it. Faith is a part of it. If you're waiting till you understand everything about Christianity, you'll never come to faith in Christ because you'll never understand it all. It's not possible. If you could figure God out and all the nuances and all the, you know, the, the riches of Scripture, then it wouldn't be inspired, holy, or, or divine. The fact that we can't figure it all out is proof in some ways that it is of God and it is from God. So I'm just suggesting to your heart, once you have received enough information to where you feel that leadership of the Spirit in your life, you take the step of faith, you pivot, and you make your way home. And what you find when that moment happens is you find a God that loves you. You find a God that cares for you. You find a God that will receive you. And so when the criticism happens in Luke 15, what Jesus does is he, he tells a, para, a parable. Now understand, a parable, a good way of thinking about a parable, a parable was an earthly story that had a spiritual significance. A parable, think about a, a parallel, uh, like railroad track. Think about a parable. A parable is like a railroad, it's a parallel. It's this truth, but I'm teaching this truth at the same time. I'm talking to you about something that's very practical, but there's also a spiritual application to what I'm teaching. So when Jesus taught these parables, it had interest in terms that it was an earthly story, but it had a greater meaning that there was a spiritual significance. So he gives this, this parable, and in the parable, he talks about a lost coin, a lost piece of silver. He talks about a lost sheep, which is ironic. Did you know sheep is the most frequent animal God uses to describe us? Now, now let me, just let me chase this one rabbit here, because this is, why sheep? What little I, and nothing against sheep. I love sheep. They're delicious. But here, here's what I know about. Here, here's what I know about. I'm just kidding. Here's what I know about. I, I know about sheep. They're not the smartest animals in the world. The sheep are dumb. Dumb. Uh, I mean, uh, back in the day when I was a kid, there was a, a rodeo performer named Tommy Lucia, and he had a he had a, a sheepdog with a monkey that would ride on the sheepdog's back. And part of the deal was he had turned these sheep loose out in the arena at Will Rogers, and the sheepdog with the monkey on his back, you got to get in the picture, uh, would, would herd these sheep down the arena into a pen. And then he'd scare them out, and the sheepdog would chase them down with the monkey on his back and chase them into the other pen, back and forth, working them a few times, and then he'd run them into a, into a trailer, and they'd go for the next performance. Well, there's like 26 performances. And, and what struck me is, that's the same dog, that's the same monkey, and get this, it's the same sheep. <laughs> Don't you think after 26 performances and multiple rodeos all over the country, sooner or later, the sheep would figure out the bit? <laughs> all right, the monkey's on the dog. Ha ha, let's run down, get in the pen. Then we're gonna run down to the other end. Then we're gonna get in the trailer. Then we're gonna go back and eat something. All right, y'all, let's go do it, right? But no, I've seen it multiple times. Those sheep walk into that arena like they've seen their first sunrise. <laughs> what? What is this? Where are we? Who are these people? 
What's, what's the, it's just a dog. And there's a monkey on the dog, run. Uh, it's, they're, they're dumb. You, listen, you can't train a sheep. There's no, I, I'm wearing this out, but I just don't want, I want you to miss this. It's just the way my mind works. I'm a little ADHD, so go with me on this. It's, it's, it, that's the way, so they're, they're dumb. They don't, they're, you can't train them. Not only that, did you know sheep are dependent? Uh, the people that raise sheep will tell you that if a sheep strays and they're prone to stray, they will stray. Did you know if a sheep becomes cast? Do you know what that means? If the sheep rolls over on its back, they call that becoming cast. Did you know a sheep cannot get itself righted again? That, that furry booger will stick his heads up, to, uh, little legs up toward heaven and die if somebody doesn't come along and roll him over. So when Jesus was thinking about, and, and by the way, they're dependent. They, they, they have to have somebody taking care of them, right? Uh, uh, the other word I was looking for, they're defenseless. Sheep does not strike fear in the hearts of anybody. <laughs> Nobody. Well, if I could be an animal, I'm gonna be a sheep. I mean, we call it sheeple, meaning we just blindly follow somebody, right? Well, that's the whole idea of I'm, my point. I don't you miss it. That's the word Jesus used, are you ready, to describe us. And so I'm just suggesting that we all have a tendency. I can look at your life and see some crazy mistake you make. And what I'll do is I'll say, well, that happened to you, won't happen to me. And I'll go do the same crazy thing you did. And I'll go, well, gee, I thought, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> dumb, dumb. We, we, we tend to be that way. And so what I'm just suggesting to you is Jesus told a parable about a lost piece of silver and a lost sheep. And then the third one that we'll focus on on the next few weeks as we go to Easter is he told about a lost son. He told about a boy that grew up in a good home with a loving father, a dad that literally provided everything that he needed, but there came a point in life when it wasn't enough. He wanted what he wanted and he wanted it then. And he breaks the heart of his father he jumps the fence, if you will, and he leaves home. And the parable was about a God who loved his son enough to let him walk away, watched for him every day, waited for him, hoped that the boy would learn what he was trying to learn, and at some point, make the pivot and come home. And so the story, and we'll just touch on this before we go home. In uh, Luke 15, verse 11, the Bible says Jesus continued. He's still telling, he's talking to these guys who were critical to him for going after lost people. He said, there was a man that had these two sons. The younger one said, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, now let me give you the context because text without context is pretext and you won't understand. So let me give you the context. The context was in that day for a young man to require or request his inheritance, which he was legally entitled to, to request the inheritance before his father had died was an insult. Essentially what he was saying is, I wish you were dead. You know, I don't care how much you love me or I don't care how much you've done for me, I'm done with you. And so it was an insult that the son would request his inheritance from his father. And he was essentially saying, I wish you were dead. It was a huge insult. We don't know how old the young man was. He was obviously old enough to leave the nest and kind of try to make it on his own. But the father wasn't ready. He didn't think the boy was ready. By the way, parents, we have kind of that sense of when the kids are ready to leave the nest. You kind of have that feeling. But this young man had an idea that he knew more than his father and he was ready to go. And he, he was one of those kids that we described as being more of a strong-willed child. Now, we've talked about before those two types of kids, right? Some of you have raised both. I have. You have a, a, a compliant child. 
How many compliant children are in the room? You're not ashamed of that? God bless you. Raise your hand now. Come on, you're in church. It's a chance to vote. All right, all right, got several. Man, God loved the compliant child. Let me describe them. The compliant child is you just tell them, don't do this, honey, and they won't do it. You say, if you try this, it, it's gonna hurt, and they won't try it. I mean, aren't they a blessing? Typically, if you have them first, you'll have more. Because <laughs> you're like, hey, this is a breeze. Cool. Compliant kid. I just tell them and they do it. Sweet. Well, then what happens is you get that strong willed child. Now, if you have that one first, you may not have a second one, right? Uh, that strong-willed child, man, that'll, that'll test your grace meter and your grace gauge all the time. It's like that woman that had two strong-willed children and a friend asked her one time, well, honey, if you had it to do all over again, would you still have kids? She said, yeah, I just wouldn't have the same ones. <laughs> strong will. That strong-willed child just learns by what they experience. Wet paint, they gotta touch it. Do not enter, they're heading through there. Don't do it, they're gonna do it. Thanks for the advice. You're gonna get hurt, nah. What I'm suggesting to you, this young man in the story was a strong-willed child. And what I'm also telling you is the dad in the story, let him do it. Knowing that the only way he was going to learn was not from what the father expressed to him, but from what the boy experienced. And can I tell you, parents, sometimes kids are just, they are the way they are. And when they get to a certain stage in life, sometimes the best thing to do is let them experience the thing they think they want to do. They'll learn by their experiences. You have to let them go at some point. And can I say this too, uh, to help some of you that are fighting some parent guilt? Just because you have a little booger that twists off for a period of time is not an insult on your parenting skills. I mean, sometimes when kids, you know, mess up and you man, they're just going a different direction and, and they're making some crazy, we didn't raise them that way. I can tell you the times I've heard that. They weren't raised that way. And now they're doing these, these things that they know are not right and they know are wrong. Can, can I tell you, that's not an indictment on you as a parent. I remember Proverbs 22, six, train up the child in the way they should go. You've done that. And then notice now, when they're old, they'll not depart. Didn't say those little boogers wouldn't twist off when they're young. It means if you put good stuff in them, at some point down the road, they're gonna, good stuff in, good stuff out. It's gonna come back. So you, you have to be, you have to wait. Remember this, God had two kids. He was the perfect parent and look how that worked out. So I'm saying, sometimes you can be the best parent, you do all that you can do and sometimes those kids are going to learn, they're gonna do the things that they're gonna do and they're gonna make their own mistakes. And in the story, this is what happens to this. I mean, the story opens with Jesus saying, this young man, left. he left a good father. By every recollection, the context of Jesus' story, this was a dad that loved this boy. This was a dad that provided everything this boy needed, and yet the boy came to a point where he lost respect for his father and he wanted to leave on his own. So when you begin to understand the first point, the, the things that he left, he left this good parent. By the way, he left a gracious protection. Man, a lot of times kids don't realize how much protection a good mom and a good dad can provide for them while they're in the home. I mean, one of the beautiful descriptions of our Lord is he talks about himself as a hen that is covering up their babies, chicks. Remember, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you under my wing as a hen doth gather her chickens and you wouldn't? 
So God is spoken of as a father. He's spoken of sometimes as a mother. He's, he's as a nurturer and as a protector. I read an article, one of the fires in, in Northern California was going through, and after the, the, the firefighters had gotten it under control, they were going through probing for hot spots. And one of those forest rangers came on a, a tree that was smoldering, and at the base of the tree, he saw this bird, and this bird was burnt and dead. And he said the bird was in a, a little cupped position with her wings. And he took, his, he took his stick where he was probing for his hot spots, and he probed that. And out from under her wings ran two or three little baby birds that the mother had given her life to protect her babies. That's a good parent. That, that, that's what Jesus is describing here. By the way, that's what Jesus did on the cross. So I'm suggesting in spite of all that, he twists off. He walks away from a good parent. He walks away from a great protection. He walks away from a gracious provision. Everything he needed, nurturing, he had it in that home. Food, he had it in that home. He had everything, but he, he left it. He walked away because he had to learn some lessons on his own. Notice secondly, not just what he left, but notice what he lost. And man, this is significant because when you leave where you're supposed to be, it always costs you something. Notice what he lost. Look down at verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set for a distant country and there squandered, Jesus said squandered, he just blew it. His wealth and Jesus said in wild living. But after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. Now, did you know God will bring things into the person's life to bring them to that epiphany? Did you know God loves you enough to where he will allow certain things to bring you to the end of yourself so that you realize your need for him? God was sovereignly in the story at work in the life of the young man where the young man was squandering his wealth and he was living crazy, doing crazy stuff. And all of a sudden, man, the circumstances of his life changed and he couldn't get himself out. He couldn't buy his way out. He didn't have enough friends to help him out. He's kind of at the end of himself. Matthew 5, when Jesus was talking, he said, it's kind of a hard, strange teaching. He said, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. He said, you're better to go into heaven with one than into hell with two. He said, if your right arm offends you, cut it off. You're better to go into heaven than with one than into hell with two. Now, what was he saying? I can tell you what he wasn't saying. He wasn't saying that God is some sovereign sadist that takes pleasure in pain. What he was saying is, if it takes, listen, if it takes pain, if it takes difficulty to bring me to the end of myself where I'll trust God, he's more just to allow the pain than to let me go merrily on my way into eternity without him. I actually have had people tell me, Bill, I don't think I would have ever looked up had I not hit the bottom. And everybody has a bottom is different for everybody. Your bottom might not be the same bottom as somebody else, but everybody's got a bottom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that kind of works, doesn't it? But the point I'm making is this young man had to hit bottom. He had to come to this end of himself. He had to come to this place. And notice, after he spent it, after, after he, look at verse 15. He goes and hires himself out to a citizen of the country. Now, this is a desperate kid because Jewish boys were told, you stay away from pigs. You stay away from that. You, you don't get around them. And notice what he did. He goes and, and he, he goes into the fields and feeds pigs. And he got so hungry that he began to eat the pods the pigs were eating. And no longer did anyone give him anything. 
boy, this is the bottom. <laughs> if, if, if you could rewind it and go sit down with that boy in the house, if you were a friend and you could sit down with him when he's telling you what he's gonna do and you could tell him what he's gonna experience, do you think he would have done that? Never. Someone said one time, sin will always take you farther than you wanna go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay and it'll cost you a lot more than you wanted to pay. It's funny how the devil never shows you the end of a thing. He, he just gets you to make the decision in the moment. If the young men know that, boy, eventually I'm gonna lose, my friends are gonna be gone, my money's gonna be gone, I'm gonna be living with pigs and eating what they eat, he went, no thanks, I'll, I'll, I'll work it out. I'm staying at the house. But none of that was in his mind. And what happens a lot of times with the enemy, he gets us so full of ourselves. At the heart of every bad decision that you and I make is selfishness. You remember what Jesus prayed in the garden before he went to the cross? He prayed, this is so profound. He said, not my will, but thine be done. Every stupid mistake I've ever made has been I will instead of thy will. Selfishness is always at the heart of the big mistakes that we make in life. We have to pit the pause break and consider, is this good, really good for, is it good for other people? Who's gonna be affected by the decision that I'm about to make? So you see what he left and you see what he lost. And this is the third one. You see what he learned. And this is the redemptive part of the story. Look down at verse 17. He came to a census. Did you know nobody ever goes to God till they first come to themselves? You gotta get your mind right. <laughs> We've talked about this before. You don't reach people till they get reachable. I said you build redemptive bridges to people who don't know Christ, but the reality of it is they're not gonna be receptive until their heart becomes open. I've got a lot of friends, a lot of people in my life who don't know God. I mean, they're, they're great people and I'm purposefully friends with them, but they don't know God. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm just saying, I, I wanna be alongside, be their friend, accept them, love and appreciate it and pray for them because at some point, they're gonna hit a, a, a spot. Some point they're gonna hit a bottom and they may want somebody to pray for them and they may want somebody that's known for praying to pray. They, they may want somebody that's connected to God to send a good word in for them. So I wanna be the guy. So until that time, I have a redemptive relationship. I hang out with them, I check on them, I call them. They, they call me from time to time. I have a lot of friends like that. And I'm just suggesting to your heart that this guy had not, no one wanted anything to do with him. And, and he came to a point, he had to come to himself. He had to get reachable. And he hit the bottom. And when he hit the bottom, he said, uh, man, um, my dad, I know my dad has a lot of hired men. Uh, he has a lot of food, food to spare, and I'm sitting here starving to death. So now he gets a plan. Notice his plan. See, see what he's thinking. I'll sit out. I'll go back to my father. I'll say, Father, he's rehearsing this. I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no, worthy, no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Now understand there were two classes of uh, employees that worked in that day. One class of employee would stay on the farm. They would have living quarters on the farm bunkhouses or living quarters, and another class were like contractors. They would be hired in. And the people who lived on the farm, the people who stayed there, sometimes got to share in the inheritance. I mean, the, the, the owner would appreciate their longtime loyalty and would put them in the will. But notice what he's saying. He's not saying that. 
He's not saying, I wanna be one of the employees that live on the farm and be able to stay in the bunkhouse and help dad from time to time. He said, I, I'm not even worried to be that. I, I'll live in town. Dad, you just call me when you need something fixed. You just, you, I'll contract, I'll, just hire me out and I'll help you and maybe you can help me. And so you, you see how, how repentant he was. You know, when a person is genuinely repentant, part of it is humility. The, 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 it's like the word of the hymn that said, in my hand, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There's a note of humility that comes when a person is broken, when a person is genuinely repentant. This guy said, I got nothing, I got nothing. Maybe I'll just appeal to my father and maybe he'll take, and so the Bible says, so he got up. At <laughs> some point you gotta get up. You have to get sick and tired of being sick and tired and say, this ain't working. I'm not happy. I, I, I'm, I, okay, Bill's challenging me to go home. He's saying there's a God in heaven that loves me. At some point you gotta get up and you gotta head that direction. He got up and he started going that way. And notice now, while he was a, a long way off, his father saw him, had compassion on him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now what's indicated in, the, in that Greek is he just kissed him multiple times. His dad just kissing all over his head. Now understand, this boy had been sleeping with pigs. There was the stink of the hog on the boy. He smelt bad looked terrible, emaciated. The father didn't see any of that. He didn't see any of that. He saw his boy. You know, when you come to Jesus, he doesn't see his, your sin. All that's covered under the blood. He just sees your heart. He just sees you. He loves me in spite of me. That old hymn, just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. You come to Jesus, you gotta come with the smell of the hog on you, man. <laughs> you gotta come emaciated and empty. You gotta come dirty, messed up. That's how you do it. And I love the story because the Bible says the father ran and kissed him and welcomed him home. He didn't say, well, I'm gonna put you on probation for a little while. I'm gonna dangle you out over hell for a little bit, see how sincere you are. Send you to purgatory, maybe I'll get you out. No, he said, no, you come you come as you are. He received him. He welcomed him. He loved him. He forgave him. I read a story. I'm done with this one. You know, I'm really done. This is like the third time I said I'm done. This is, this is really done. But it was a young family in South America, and the woman had a, a, a baby. She named Christina. The mom's name was Maria. And not long after Christina was born, their, her father died. So she's left with these four little kids to try to provide for them and be a good mom in South America where the economy was much, much more trying. And not a lot of support, no social net at all. So she worked hard to provide everything she could for her kids, loved them, prayed for them. I mean, just a great mom. But when Christina got, Christina got to a certain age, like the prodigal, she rebelled against her mother she decided she's gonna go out on her own. She's gonna to go to the big city. She's gonna make a life for herself. And her mother warned her. She said, honey, you don't know what's in the big city. You, you don't know the temptations. You're not, ready. You're not ready for that. Little girl rebelled. One morning, the mom goes in to wake her up and she's gone. She leaves a note, hateful, hurtful note. Maria's heart is broken. She's not able to leave the little kids to go to the city to try to find Christina. 
So she just began to pray. She said, God, I'll just turn her over to you. But that mama's heart, and you mamas in the room know what that's like. She just couldn't give up on her. Her heart was so heavy, she finally got a friend. She said, would you stay with my kids? I gotta go see if I can find her. She'd been gone a matter of weeks and her heart was so heavy for her daughter. So she went into the big city and she went and had a, a, a photograph made of herself, of her own image, and had numerous copies of that made. And she began to put her picture up around the city, outside of bars and cheap hotels and some drug uh, dens and places where people would tend to trend once their life had kind of hit the bottom. She literally, the story said, put out hundreds of those pictures. And the story is one night, Christina was stumbling out of a drug house and saw the picture of her mother on a post outside the door. And she went to it and she took the picture and she turned the picture over. And on the back, her mom had written these words, Christina, I love you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. Please come home, mom. And they said it hit the heart of that young girl, broke her heart. And you know what Christina did? She went home. She found a mom that would love her, who welcomed her, who forgave her. She ended up having a great life. This series is about our church saying to a hurting group of people, God loves you. Come home. He left the splendor of heaven. He went to a cross. He did all the heavy lifting. And all you have to do is turn and come home. God loves you. He cares for you. He died for you. There's nothing he would not do for you. And this morning, he's calling you to come home. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my friends today who've wandered. We all wander from time to time. And Lord, they're not where they should be. Some have really never been in a relationship with you. They've been a little skeptical. And this morning, maybe you're opening their heart to the idea to receive you. So Father, I don't know where everyone is in their journey. Those watching online by the hundreds, we have no idea. But Father, you know. And it's no accident they've tuned in or they're listening because the providence of God brought them to this moment for a reason. You just wanted to use this voice and this worship to say to their heart one more time, I love you, come home. So I pray for those, Lord, who may never have trusted you. May this be the moment they just humble their heart and say, Lord Jesus, with all that I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin, and I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.